You can grab a Bible over here at the coffee bar. We would love for you to have a Bible in your hand. And so if you don't have a Bible, just grab one over here. I'm actually going to be preaching from it, so I can tell you what page it's on, page 898, if you want to go grab one. Um, We're going to be in Luke 15. Um, Somebody told me this past week, they were like, I've never been to a church service that had an intermission. I was like, it's only going to be weird for a little while, so... (laughs) One of my favorite stories from last week is there was a, a young woman, she's a student at the University of Memphis, and I, I walked up to a group of people, and I knew a couple of them. They were on our launch team, a couple of college students, and then there was all these other friends. And so I was like, how do you all know each other? And they started naming connections back and forth. I was like, well, how do you know this group? And she said, I just met them this morning. <laughs> and, and then, uh, let's see, Zach, where are you at? Zach goes, and now she's in our oikos. <laughs> Zach is our hype man, I guess. And so she had seen an ad on Instagram, realized that Oikos Church was just down the road from the University of Memphis. And college students, I mean, you, the reason we are here in the university district is so that you can have a church home during this season of your life, so that God's deep transformation work may be happening. Um, that's, that's a key priority for us. And so it was so cool to see somebody who didn't know us, didn't know anyone, saw an Instagram ad, showed up, and then she went to lunch with 14 people. Uh, I was just like, this is, this is Oikos right here. Um, man, last week was so emotional for me. I had prepared to be nervous, but instead I was just overwhelmed. Uh, I walked in, and there were so many people that I knew and loved who just came to support us. Um, you know, I, I would just give a, like a big bear hug to person after person after person, which probably why half of them are out with COVID this week. Um, not for me, but, you know, that's how it goes right now. Um, I was just weeping for like the first 30 minutes. Uh, it was just, it's such a special day. But then there were all these other people. Uh, there was like 75 people I didn't know. I, our launch team I knew. The people who were local support or came in from out of town, I knew most of those people. And then there were all these new faces. And then I look around and it's like, you're back. <laughs> what are you doing here? You're back. Um, that's really what today's lesson is trying to capture. Like, welcome back, but <laughs> kidding, but not kidding. What are you doing here? Now, some of you are committed, right? You're launch team people. You're in. You, you signed up for at least a year, and you're like, I want to serve. I want to see where this goes. God has called me into this, and I'm really excited. I saw Jesslyn Maxwell on our Slack channel. She was just like, this was an amazing Sunday, and the best part is we get to do it again next week. And I was like, I'm aware that not everybody in the room feels like that. <laughs> some, for some of you, this is your first time back in a church in a very long time. Some of you can point to COVID and say, you know, there's such disruption. I didn't want to get sick. You know, I was worshiping online, and then at some point I kind of stopped worshiping online. And then there's other people who are actually asking yourself that question that I started with, like, what are you doing here? And you're like, what am I doing here? This is not where I want to be. I'm here. Maybe somebody asked you to be here. Maybe somebody put a little pressure on you to be here, but you're here. Um, and this morning, I'm, I'm holding out hope, and it's been in my prayers, that part of the reason that you came, whether you're committed, whether you're, like, open to coming back in, or whether you feel really out of place this morning. Part of my prayer is that you would be aware that God may be using that to call you to himself. That the 
Father actually wants you to be with him. And perhaps that's here. And so that, that's where I want to go with Luke 15. Luke 15 is about people who are welcomed back, people who are welcomed home. And they have different motivations underneath the surface for where that's coming from. So let's dive into this text. We're just going to walk through this text together. Luke 15 is an extraordinary parable. Um, if you've been around churches, you've heard a sermon on Luke 15. I'm fully aware. This is not going to be the best sermon on Luke 15 you've ever heard. Um, but I pray that there's a word from the Lord for you today. So let's, let's just dive into this text. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Do you see what's prompting this whole chapter? Don't miss this. We're going to come back to it at the end, but here it is highlighted in yellow. You don't have to read it, though. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's something about who Jesus is with, who he shares a table with, who he goes into their homes that's causing trouble between two groups of people. On the one hand are tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, you know, are really despised by Jewish people because they're working on behalf of their Roman oppressors. Jewish people at this time feel like they're in exile. And you're working for Babylon? The sinners are just people who have a reputation for being unclean. And so the religious people can't have anything to do with them. This was unheard of that a Jewish rabbi could openly associate and even eat with unclean, despised people like tax collectors and sinners. But here Jesus is doing it. And because he knows that they're muttering in their hearts, they're complaining, they're accusing, he wants to tell them this story. So Jesus told them this parable. Now, the way that we're going to read Luke 15 is as one parable in three parts. There's one parable in three parts. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, and we're going to read them as a unit because that's how they're presented. This is not Jesus one day was talking over here about the sheep, one day was talking over here about the coin, and then, uh, you know, on his best day of preaching, he finally came up with the lost son parable. This was all at once, and so what we're going to do is look for repeating phrases. This is a, a good Bible reading technique. When you see words that repeat, you can kind of know that's an important concept. We're going to look for repetition, but then when when like uh, these segments are put together, we're going to read them in light of each other. We're it's, it's like the elementary exercise of compare and contrast. Like, where do you notice repetition, and then where do you notice difference? Okay, so we're going to be on the lookout for that as we walk through this. But if you read commentators, they say there's no doubt that this is like a, a single theme throughout this whole chapter. Let's discover this theme together. All right. Um, Chapter 3, uh, chapter 15, verse 3, he told him this parable. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, this concept is actually really unusual in the Jewish world at the time. Now, we're accustomed to a God who goes after people. You've probably heard sermons. You've probably sung worship hymns or praise songs about how God is going after us. But in the Jewish world at this time, they had a concept of God being open to receiving sinners. They did not have a concept of God going after sinners. But here, it says that he will go until he finds it. And when he finds it, it says that he will joyfully put it on his shoulders and go home. And then he calls his friends. By the way, do you see that word home? Oikos. Um, <laughs> Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. 
you see the joy language. Remember, we're looking for repeating concepts. Joyfully, he will rejoice with me. And then it, it gives us the conclusion in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing. This, this little parable is clearly about joy. It's about celebration. It's about rejoicing. He's, he's used as a word over and over and over again. Yes, it's about seeking, but some, it's about seeking for the celebration that's coming after. But look when the celebration comes. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, you may be wondering, what does repent mean? It's just a, a pretty simple word that means turn around, to rechange direction. And this idea of the intersection of repentance and rejoicing, that's what we're looking at here. This is the conclusion that he draws. Let's, let's keep going. Let's go ahead and read the, n- the next kind of section of this single parable. You notice how the next parable starts in verse 8. It doesn't say, and then he told him another parable. He just goes straight into it. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Have you seen that phrase before, until she finds it? Yeah. The diligence of the search is a, a key part of this. Searching, going after until you find it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These are the same story, aren't they? Something valued is lost. Something lost is searched for. Something searched for is found. Something found is celebrated. What does this mean? It means that repentance and rejoicing belong together. They have this intimate connection. There's a a famous painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, It's a Rembrandt. And there's there's this Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen. He has this encounter with his painting, and he's just humbled. It's like his life is exposed before God as he's reflecting on the characters in this scene of what happens in Luke 15. But he says, he says this. Um, he says, for most of my life, I've struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. And I have tried hard. So he, he's talking about, I, I've done the prayer thing and the Bible reading thing. I mean, he's a priest after all. I've tried hard. Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God? But how am I to let myself be found by God? The Lord is seeking. This revolutionary idea that's inserted through the teaching of Jesus, this amazing rabbi, he says, God wants you. He's searching for you. I don't know why you're here today, but is it possible that God is at work in your heart and your mind to draw you back to himself and to a community of love where you can grow into the image of Jesus Christ? The intersection here is of joy and repentance, and so it leaves me wondering, who are these people who don't need to repent? Who are these people who do need to repent and then be welcomed home so that they can experience joy? Jesus continues this parable in verse 11, 
and this is where it really gets good. This is where it gets famous. Uh, once again, it's a unified theme. Jesus, it says, he continued. Hey, let me move that. He continued. This is the same, same thing. Unified theme. He says, there was a man who had two sons. One day I was telling Fletcher a bedtime story, my, my kindergarten son. And I started with, there was a man who had two sons. And he's like, Dad, I know this one. He said, Jacob and Esau. I was like, son, I'm really proud of you. That's not the story I'm about to tell you. But it's actually a really insightful Bible reading technique that the biblical authors will bring up themes and cues to draw in the back of your mind, not the foreground, but like the background music. It's like as you're listening to the music of, of Jacob and Esau, it starts playing again when we're reading Luke 15. Uh, an older brother and a younger brother one who goes off into a far country and then has to be welcomed back into the fold. But it, it, he was like, oh, not Jacob and Esau? Maybe it's Joseph and his brothers. It's like, yes, yes, there too. Or maybe it's Cain and Abel. Do you see that this is a theme throughout the whole of Scripture? This, uh, there was a man who had two sons. Um, let's keep going. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father, he divided his property between them, literally his, his bios, his life, the, the word bios, he gave his life to his son, his living, his livelihood, everything. The son comes to him and basically says, I wish you were dead. Could I go ahead and have my inheritance? And to everyone's surprise, he says, yes, <laughs> you can have it. Now, th this is actually like legal language at the time. Um, ladies, I'm sorry to say, in the first century Jewish world, you could not receive an inheritance. Only male children could receive inheritance. And then the firstborn got a double portion. So there's two sons, which means one guy gets two-thirds and the other guy gets, anybody doing fractions this morning? One-third. But if you got it early, sometimes you'd have to, like, get a reduced amount. So maybe you get two-ninths. But he's like, that's worth it. I just want it right now. I just want to get out of here. Um, so... The man had two sons, and then he, he does divide his property between them. I just think this is such an important kind of way of seeing God. A lot of times people will ask, like, why did God let this happen to me? Or they'll be struck by the judgment of God. Where's his justice in the concept of hell or of, of sin and all the wrongdoing, the trauma in our world? But this is a pretty good picture of the most, this is actually the most common way God handles sin in Scripture. He says he gives us over to it. There's a, a writer, C.S. Lewis, you've heard of him. He says there's really only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. Or those to whom God says, your will be done. You can have it. It doesn't lead to life. I'm not going to get in your way. So the, the Hebrew concept of sin is something that has its consequences built into it. The, wor the word iniquity, like in Hebrew, it is sin and consequence. It's, it's all the same. When James talks about sin, he says it's like a seed that's planted, and then it grows up, multiplies, and brings forth death. So sin is when someone plants a seed of death in you that grows up, and leads to, to death and exile and isolation. 
And sin is where you plant a seed in someone else's life. And we live in a world where everyone's planting, it's just like, you know, every, there's this super spread, the, the planes are going over, they're just dropping uh, sin seeds that are bringing forth death, and, and those are buried in our hearts, those are buried in our bodies, those are buried in our minds, those are buried in our family histories, those are buried in our national histories, those are buried in our churches. God, he gives us over to the consequences. It's not his desire. And it's not even so much an outside judgment. It's just the natural outcome of, of those things we're planting. Son, you can go. You can have it. But you know the story. You know where he goes, right? So not long after that, the younger son, he got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. Distant country for a Jewish person? This is exile language. He's leaving the homeland, the, the place where God lives. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. This is, the King James used the word prodigal. That's why we call this guy the prodigal son. It's just extravagance. There, there's no stopping this guy. He's just excess, more. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. It feels good to be away, but then exile comes <laughs> with a vengeance. Uh, once again, uh, Henry Nouwen, on this, on this text, he just has a beautiful thought about like what it might look like to be in a distant country today. We're, we're not Jewish people, but what would it look like to leave our home where our life is with our father? Where do we go? He says this. He says addiction might be the best word for it. He says we start looking at the accumulation of wealth and power, the attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. Sex, food, drink, power. He says these create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs. As long as we live within the world's delusions, our addictions condemn us to futile quests in the distant country, leaving us to face an endless series of disillusionments while our sense of self remains unfulfilled. Now, what's he saying? He's saying we look for life and meaning in all the wrong places. And inevitably, always, they will lead to these resemblances of exile and death. This is, this is not like a, an extra judgment of God. This is just the facts of the world that we live in, that God created. That the way of Jesus leads to life, and the way of self leads to death. This is the great rescue operation. We need to know this, but then we need to be rescued from it. Okay, so what happens here? He spends everything, he gets in a famine, and then it says, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Now, he's talking, remember, at the occasion of tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes. There's one group here who actually is working for citizens of the Roman Empire. He's working for them. So he hires himself out to uh, the citizens of that country, and then he went and spit his, uh, they send him to the fields to feed pigs. And he longed for his stomach to be filled with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. There's a couple of phrases here that are really 
you're going to like wink at when we get to the end of it. No one gave him anything because he's just in the field working. Okay, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Do you remember that this is a, a story about repentance and rejoicing? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and 99 who don't need it. There's, there's greater joy in the presence of the angels of God when a sinner repents than what we see in these huge celebrations of a shepherd and the woman finding her coin. And now we see what repentance looks like. I have sinned against heaven. You see, it's the surrender to the God, the king of heaven and earth that says, I'm at the end of myself. I'm ready to find myself. I'm at the end of myself, where is my true self? And the true self is found on the other side of repentance. This surrender to the God of heaven. But part of repentance is also recognizing how your choices have impacted other people. And so he says to his father, I've also sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Look how personal this repentance is. You see all, all the first person pronouns I've highlighted up here? My, I, I, my, I, I, me. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Do you remember repetition means it's important? Same line, repeated again. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your, your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Wait, went to his father? Guys, this, this is the first week I noticed that that line in yellow is in this text. I've always thought that he went home, that he went back, he went to his country. It's so beautiful that now he, he goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. I, I love this. This word is always in the Gospels used of Jesus or about Jesus. Here's a couple of stories where the compassion of Jesus shows up. There's this father, he has a child, and the child is doing a lot of self-harm. He's hurting himself, mutilating himself. He says, Jesus, I know you can do something about this. And he starts pleading with Jesus to rescue his son from this, this plight that he's in. And it says that Jesus had compassion on this boy. There's a hungry crowd. They've been following him for a couple of days. And they're hungry. They just need food. They're just poor people with nothing to eat. And Jesus, it says, had compassion. He had compassion. He felt for them. There's a widow. Her child has recently died. And they're doing a, a funeral procession through town. And she's just moaning. And Jesus is in town that day. And sees this mother mourning the death of her son. And it says that he was moved with compassion. He feels for us. He cares about us. He doesn't want to see us suffer. He doesn't want to see us hurt. The father is looking for his son, scanning the horizon, and his heart doesn't want to see where he's gone. His heart hurts with him. It hurts for him. 
he just wants them back. Like, no, he sees them finally. And so he just runs out to meet them. And he gives them a, a great big hug, and he, he kisses them. Um, parents, do you ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible? This is a really beautiful section of that little kid's book. As he starts for home, he begins to worry. Dad won't love me anymore. I've been too bad. He won't want me for his son anymore. And so he practiced his I'm sorry speech. All this time, while he doesn't know, is that day after day, his dad has been standing on his porch, straining his eyes, looking into the distance, waiting for his son to come home. He just can't stop loving him. He longs for the sound of his boy's voice. He can't be happy until he gets him back. The sun is still a long way off, but he sees his dad sees him coming. What will the dad do? Fold his arms and frown? Shout, that'll teach you, and just you wait, young man. No, that's not how this story goes. The dad leaps off the porch, races down the hill, through the gap in the hedge, up the road, before his son can even begin his I'm sorry speech. His dad runs to him, throws his arms around him, and can't stop kissing him. Let's have a party, his dad shouts. My boy is home. What a, what a cool image of our father. And so the father, then he says to his servant, uh, the, the son says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts and he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Get the ring on his finger. This is a symbol of royalty. Give him his authority. Give him his sonship. He's back in the family. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. He's going to use these words in just a minute. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Have you seen this one before? When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry. Can you hear the muttering of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them? He became angry and he refused to go in. And so his father came out. And he pleaded with him and he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Slaving away. He uses the word for slavery here. Slaving. Tim Keller, he says, there are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. He's still out in the field. He's disconnected from the celebration. The messenger has to come tell him that his family's having a party. You never gave me anything, he says, because in his mind, everything is earned. Everything is owed. There's no grace here. You never gave me anything. Do you remember the younger brother? He longed for the pods of the pigs, but they never gave him anything. But his father would. So uh, the, the brother, it says, when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you were always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. I think there's a lot of meaning in, in this last phrase. Everything I have is yours. You remember the theme from the shepherd. How long does he search for the sheep? Until he finds it. You remember the theme from the, the woman with the coin. How long does he search and go after the sheep? Search and go after until she finds it. Let me ask, where's the search with the lost son? Now you may be thinking, well, the father, he's looking and he runs out to meet him. Yes, but that is, that is different. <laughs> different kind of search. Um, when I was recently married, my wife Kelsey gave, us, gave me us this really nice camera. And one day it went missing. Um, I, I searched and I searched. It was like every couple months I would just go back and search all the same places again. It's like it's still not in that closet that I've searched over and over. It's still, you know, it's like you just keep going back because it has value to you. You just keep looking. Yesterday there was a dog that was chasing my chickens in my yard. And we don't have a dog. <laughs> so we went out there. We found the tag. We called the number. Um, There's some like pet security system. I was like, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, a few minutes later, a woman runs up to the house. Have you, have you found, I heard you found my dog. Yeah, we did. Here it is. <laughs> you ever lost something? You look for it, don't you? You go after it. But sometimes we really look for it. When I was a kid, um, my brother ran away from home. I, am I the only one? Can you, like, give me a nod or a hand if somebody else's sibling has run away from home or maybe you did? Is that just me in the movies? Okay. One day he ran away from home. And guys, we don't live in the city. We didn't live in the city. We lived in a small town. We were like out in the country. Where's he going? As a kid, I didn't know if he was coming back. I didn't know if we could find him. He just went off into the woods. We start calling all the neighbors. It's not like you can track them. This is, I'm an old man. This is before that. And I'd, I'd go off into the woods we're hollering his name. We go looking for my lost brother. Nobody does in this story. Isn't that weird? There's, I think, two things happen. One is that the father gives us over to our choices. When somebody wants to be lost, you can't actually find them. When someone refuses to be at home, it doesn't matter kind of if you go looking for them. I, I think that is there in this text. The, the biblical concept of repentance is where you come to the end of yourself and realize that your true self is found at home with the Father. But another piece I think is going on, it's, it's here in this phrase, everything I have is yours. Now, the, the older son, he doesn't realize this. That everything, <laughs> all of it is his. The property is his. It's already been dispersed. The Father has already given up his life for these sons, and he's dispersed it between them. So the, the, the only way to receive the younger brother back is at the expense of the old brother. That's why he's so mad about that calf. That's his calf, after all. You never even gave me a goat. And so he's upset because it's going to cost him to welcome back the younger brother. The only way he can go back and welcome him into the fold is by giving up some of his inheritance, and that's mine. You see the obligation, it falls on the older brother. And the older brother's not ready to go looking for his younger brother. Tim Keller, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and the whole book is about this one parable. 
It says there's one striking difference between the third parable and the first two. In the first two, someone goes out and searches diligently for that which is lost. The searchers let nothing distract them or stand in their way. By the time we get to the third story, we hear about the plight of the lost son. And we are fully prepared to expect that someone will set out to search for him. But no one does. It's startling. And Jesus meant for it to be so. By placing the three parables so closely together, he's inviting thoughtful listeners to ask, well, who should have gone out and searched for the lost son? And the father could not reinstate him except at the expense of the other older brother. There was no other way. You see the cost of forgiveness that's involved here. When the younger brother wanted to come home, it was going to cost him something. Who's willing to pay the price? Who's willing to go searching? How can, I mean, look at this last phrase. He was dead. He was lost. What we need in this story is for someone to go to the dead and, and then to rescue them from life. <laughs> Who could possibly have that kind of power? To go to the dead and to bring life, to go to the lost and find them. Guys, I, I want to draw your attention to four phrases and just make some implications of what this means. Four phrases from Luke 15. This is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. It hangs in my office at my home. I think about it uh, all the time. <laughs> Um, it's such a great reflection tool to see yourself in the story. Depending on the day, you may feel like the guy in the background who's kind of just overlooking. You may be one of these tax collectors or Pharisees. You may be this younger brother who's just, with no soles on his shoes, just at the end of himself. This is, this is a great prayer tool. And so I'm going to use this painting just kind of help us reflect on where do we see Jesus in the story first, and then where do we see ourselves in the story over here, okay? And then, and then we'll be done, and you can go get your kids. I can't forget that. I keep being reminded by the kids' team. It's like, you've got to tell people that we're still downstairs. <laughs> Four phrases. First, where do we see Jesus in the story? This phrase, kill it, keeps getting repeated at the end. It's so weird to me. It's pretty striking because the whole story is about somebody who was dead and is now alive. And then they're like, kill it. We, we should kill something to celebrate that somebody has life. Isn't that a little weird? No, I get it. Everybody loves a good steak. And so kill, kill the calf. I get it on that level. But just from a vocabulary standpoint, it's striking when you're celebrating dead to life to start talking about killing it. But I think this is a clue where we can actually see Jesus in the story. And what we see is that Jesus, he's not only the true older brother, that he's the true firstborn son. He's the true firstborn son. The true firstborn son left his home and went to a distant country to search for us. He went into exile and he submitted himself to the citizens of that country and he was actually crucified at the hands of the Romans. He went to the lost to find us. But guys, Jesus went to the dead to give us life. Luke 24, 46, a little later in the same book, same author. It says that he fulfilled the whole story because he was raised from the dead one. This is, this is a realm of the dead that he's raised from. He's not just dead and then he came back to life. He went to the dead and found us to give us life. He's the only one who can do it. He was stripped of his robes so that we could be clothed. He was stripped of his dignity so that ours could be restored. He became an exile, an outcast, that we might be brought in by grace. He drank the cup of justice so that we could drink the cup of joy and celebration at the Father's table. 
he's the true firstborn son who goes after the younger brothers like all of us. He's the true firstborn son. He's the firstborn son of all creation. He is the true Adam. But he is also, in a sense, the true Cain who asks, am I my brother's keeper? And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And there is no vengeance required because he ushers us in to peace. Kill it. Kill the calf? You never even gave me a goat. But we know it took the death of the lamb. There was no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in, Keller says, except at the expense of our true elder brother. The way back home requires a death. We see Jesus in this story. But we also see ourselves in this story. Three phrases. I'm just taking them in order. The first phrase. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him. Some of you are like, what am I doing here? I don't really want to be here. I still feel pretty far from him. But even when you're a long way off, the father sees you. He feels with you. He cares for you. He desires for you to be with him. And his son, Jesus, has sought after you and has paid the price so that you could be welcomed back to the father. Go home? Yes, home. But it's to the father. You don't need more money. That won't solve it. You don't need a promotion, a spouse, a baby, a drink. You don't, you don't need any of those things that we search for. Those will not end your search for home. But if you turn from those pursuits to the true Savior, I think you can actually find life. You can find rest. But the relationship of repentance and rejoicing is real. You, you can't just come and say, I'm ready for my robe. And say, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy. And then you can fully expect to be robed and to get the authority of his son. And you can be welcomed back into the family. Second phrase, in the field. Now, the younger brother was in the field, but I'm especially thinking of the older brother. He's out in the field, and he, it says he refused to go in. And so his father came out to him. I'm, I'm sure that in this room there are people, it's not that you're an older brother and angry. It's probably more likely that you're just in the field and apathetic, a little distant. Anger really isn't the emotion of the 21st century. Apathy is. <laughs> you know the father. You know his family. You know the church. It's been there the last couple of years. And you, you've kept your distance. Is it possible that the Lord is using today to remind you that there's a party going on with his people? And he wants you to be a part of it. That there's joy in the presence of his people and his family. And there's life here. There's life at other churches too. I'm not just being oikos specific, but I think the Lord wants us to be a part of his people. 
this exile that sometimes is self-imposed doesn't have to be there. Today can be the end of that. This church is ready to receive you with a lot of joy if, if that's what you want. It, we're ready to open our, our tables and to share it, which is this last verse. This is, this is why Jesus is talking about this to begin with. This man welcomes, he receives sinners, and he eats with them. May it be so at Oikos Church, where we welcome to our tables, and in so doing, remind of the mission of Jesus. We share on the mission of Jesus, that we, in him, can go out and welcome in. New friends, people, this is maybe your first time here, maybe your second time. That's almost all of us, right? We've only existed for two weeks. But... If you want to plug in, we truly want to open our tables to you. Um, um, my family, we want to open our tables. Our church, we want to open our tables. Uh, we call it open house. Um, that's, that's kind of our, our big next step for you. If you want to know more about this church, let's just start by getting to know each other. Just opening our homes, sharing our stories. Uh, you don't have to cry like Reed does all the time. He doesn't cry, but it's okay if you do. Um, but for those who are in the launch team, we are ready um, to take that step into deeper community together. And our welcome home groups start in just a couple of weeks. Now, I realized uh, very recently, guys, I'm not good at football dates. I love football. It's just out of, out of my head. I think I have our group set to launch on Super Bowl Sunday. And I'm like, oh, no. So we got some competition that day. Um, we will navigate that. We will figure that out this week. Um, we're, we'll share those groups uh, with you this week. We'll invite you into homes and into discipleship and community together. I'm re- really excited about where that's going. Uh, but, but this is the call that our tables, your tables, would reflect his table in the ways that we've been welcomed in. Uh, Jason helped us kind of step into the table of the Lord today. We're only here because of him. May it be so in our homes. And that if we were to do this, to welcome in younger brothers and to go out, go out to the older brother and say, you know, why don't you come back in? We're having a great time over here. We think you'd really love it. And if we opened our tables to sinners and we ate with I'm just going to talk longer, and everybody's like, don't let them have another mic. <laughs> uh, all right, let me wrap it up. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to go into all of this, but I'll say the first time I, I dove into this text, uh, one of my brothers was in a dark time, making life-altering choices that led down a path um, that didn't lead to life. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, what can you do? but I knew I had to do something. And so I I got in the truck and I I drove 300 miles and had some of the most awkward conversations I've ever had with anyone. And I don't regret it a bit. We have to be people who embody this way of Jesus and welcome people to our tables 
but also embody the way of Jesus where we pursue the one who is wandering, to invite them back in. Thank you to those who invited people for having those awkward conversations. But if you're on the other side of that, I'm really sympathetic to how you're feeling today. And Oikos Church may not be the great hope for you, but the Lord Jesus is. Let me end with this prayer from 1 Timothy 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May God bless you.